sometimes the tax advice is really good for not so much reducing your tax, but for managing your tax obligations, but it doesn't necessarily reflect the same way for when it comes to workers' comp. You are listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 157 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Klaas for sponsoring this episode. Workers' compensation, or as it is now often called, workers' insurance, usually comes out of the back corner and we don't really think much about it until there is an injury. So to find out more and to give it the attention it deserves, I went to see Craig McBride, the Premier Manager of iCare in New South Wales, to better understand how workers' insurance actually works. Workers' insurance is state-based and Craig will talk for New South Wales. But if you're based outside of New South Wales, the questions and issues will probably be the same, but the answers might be slightly different. Anybody that has a business that employs anybody, they fall generally within the nominal insurer unless they have a specialised business, which can be insured by a specialised insurer or self-insurer. Yeah, so it's about 70% of the state is okay. roughly. So there are yeah. three categories. Yep. There's nominal insurer, yep. there's specialised, specialised insurers, insurer, and then there is... There's self-insurer. Well, there's four, four technically. Oh, okay. And then there's the what used to be called Treasury Managed Fund, which is New South Wales self-insurance, which is all government agencies have their own separate insurance Okay, there are four. There's nominal insurer, specialist insurer, self-insurer, and then there's also government self-insurer. Yep. Okay. And so iCare just covers nominal insurers? Uh, nominal insurer and the government. So, so the TMF now falls into iCare. Right. Companies, if they're big enough, can self-insure, so they underwrite their own risk. I see. And that's managed by CIRA, which is one of the entities that was set up when iCare was formed. So when WorkCover was restructured into three new entities instead of being WorkCover, it got set up in 2016 into 2015 into three entities. iCare, which handles all the insurance and care in New South Wales. SafeWork New South Wales, which is responsible for all the work health safety operations and regulation in New South Wales. And... CIRA, which is, stands for SIRA, is State Insurance Regulatory Authority, and they regulate all the insurance operations in New South Wales, all the compulsory insurances, so workers' comp, CTP, homeowners' builders' warranty, they regulate that type of insurance. Self-insurer can be a company. They're regulated by CIRA. They're licensed and regulated by CIRA. Then nominal insurer is iCare. Is iCare. And then specialised insurer. Specialised insurer is an entity that's licensed by CIRA, again, to underwrite policies in a specific industry or sector. There's like Guild, which is pharmaceuticals or or pharmacists. They they have a specialised insurer licence to issue licences now to... chemists and to early childhood daycare type things. They've had an expansion of their licence. The other one is state cover, which is can only issue policies of insurance to local government councils or local government entities, whether it be a council or a city or a shire. Coal mining 
insurance as a specialised insurer. So they they deal with employers mutual, employers hotel mutual, which covers the hotel industry, which is sort of part of EML, but they do it as a specialised insurance operation. And do pretty much all industries have a specialised insurer? No. No. It's just very specific Very specific industries, Ah, yeah. yeah. They've decided that that's a market that we can work in and play in and, and potentially look after our own industry and also, you know, make it better, a better performance for them, yeah, or a better experience for them because we know what our industry does. So if you look at all workers in New South Wales, I know that is a big group, Mm. is it fair to say that most are insured by by iCare? Under the nominal insurer. Under the nominal insurer and then only a tiny, tiny... About 30% of the rest of the states either in the government government scheme or a self-insurance scheme or a specialised insurance scheme. The initial legislation, the 1926 Act, which was workers for workers' compensation. So as far back as then, there was workers' compensation in New South Wales. I don't know about other states. I'm pretty sure it's the 26 Act, 26 Act it was called. Then that was revised in 1987 when they issued the, the Workers' Compensation Act for 1987. So prior to that, there was an act that covered workers' compensation, but it was the 19, it was in 1926. It was. Enact, yes. enacted okay. or passed. So to the best yeah. of our knowledge, workers' compensation started in 1926. In New South Wales. Would you be very lucky to break your leg in New South Wales, but really unlucky to break your leg in another state because their system is... There's different regimes of benefits and entitlements and when they, when they, when they start and when they finish depending on the severity of your injury and what type of injury you've got. Um, I'm always going to say that you're better off in New South Wales. Ours is a bit similar to Victoria and Queensland's is a little bit the same, but some some provide benefits for a lot longer for a lot more of their claims. We had changes in 2012 which restricted how, how many people would get ongoing benefits until retirement age, which changed in 2012. And Victoria's was very similar. Western Australia, they're all virtually run internally, except Western Australia, I think, is the only state that is it's a privately underwritten scheme. So private insurers will write workers' compensation, whereas in the other jurisdictions, it's semi, semi-funded or semi-looked after by the, the various state agencies. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised that it is so... So there's better entitlements. The, the changes that were made in 2012, prior to 2012, if you got hurt, you could have potentially have compensation from the date you got hurt until you reach retirement age plus 12 months, no matter what sort of injury you had, depending on your depending on what happened to you and when, when you went back to work. In 2012, they, they introduced some changes that said, unless your injury is at a certain level, you won't get benefits beyond five years from the date that you first started to receive benefits because the severity of your injury doesn't warrant you to keep getting benefits forever was the principle. So if you're above a certain threshold of what they call whole person impairment, you will continue to get benefits until retirement age. But if you're not, it'll be cut off potentially sometime within that five-year period, but no more than five years. Work out which scheme 
is responsible for the injury. So if, let's say there's a company that's operating in Queensland, but also operating in Victoria and New South Wales, but a worker who lives in South Australia has an accident in lots, New South Wales. Lots of, it happens on a regular basis and we have all the states sort of agreed to like a set of rules in regards to a state of connection. So there is wherever your state of connection is, is generally where you will be covered for your claim. So you get people like truck drivers and who might be transiting between very many states, but depending on what their state of connection is, so if they actually start and finish in New South Wales, it'll, while they might have been in Queensland when they had their accident, their state of connection will be New South Wales and their claim will be under the New South Wales jurisdiction. Businesses are set up in different states. It'll just depend on where they were engaged or what their state of connection was in regard to the job they're doing for when they got hurt. So if you were in, in New South Wales and sent to Queensland for two weeks or three weeks to do a job and you came back and you always worked in New South Wales, you just got sent to Queensland to do a one-off job. If it's not more than for more than six months, your claim would be in New South Wales. So the state of connection doesn't depend so much on the business. It doesn't depend on where the person lives, but it depends more it where depends they regularly Where they were engaged to do the work in the first place and what, they, what their connection is. And if the head office is in New South Wales and they're sending people everywhere, they'll generally only have a New South Wales policy unless they have... A, other operations in other states, which they may well do, they might have to have a policy in each of those states. Yes. Because they'll have workers that were always in Victoria. The fact that their head office is in New South Wales, they might have a warehouse in Victoria that they've got staff in. But yeah, so it's not it's not necessarily to their head office location. That's one of the things that you look at for a state of connection. But it's also where were they engaged to do the work. So if you always lived in Victoria and they said you're gonna work in the ABC factory in Victoria yet ABC is also in New South Wales, they would have a New South Wales policy. Where it gets funny is some of those states like Queen Queanbeyan and Canberra, ACT, where they move in and out mm. between yeah. places on a regular basis. That's where it gets a little bit more difficult. started working in New South Wales, hired some people, somebody gets injured. What happens when they, if they policy? They might claim against their Victorian policy and Victoria would probably say, no, that you're, those people are New South Wales workers, you need to claim against your New South Wales policy. If they don't have a New South Wales policy, we also provide um, uninsured, uninsured liability claims, which is... For people, no worker that gets injured will be disadvantaged as a result of their employer not being insured. So we will cover them for their benefits, but then we will recover that off the employer who was operating without a policy. Probably with penalties and interest. Well, yeah, the cost of the claim plus the insurance premiums that they should have paid, we could, they can charge double for that. And the cost of the claim for a significant claim could be tens of thousands or more. Yeah, So that's... That's what would happen if they were operating. Moved to New, set up a site in New South Wales, always based in New South Wales, had a factory and were working and didn't have a policy. Said, I oh, know we've got a Victorian policy. Well, it doesn't work. The only time bigger companies can sometimes do that is to go into Comcare, which is a, a federal type. So big, sometimes big, big multinational type companies will be insured in Comcare as opposed to being insured in every jurisdiction, they might try and enter Comcare. I assume not Comcare, is that a federal Com scheme? Commonwealth Compensation. So they cover anybody that's anybody within the Australian Commonwealth. Oh, I see. So is, yeah. that a fifth, is, that a, is that a fifth insurer then? It's not a really, it's not a New South Wales thing that we look after. It's a federal thing. So, and it's not as, 
for a while there, lots of big entities were moving into Comcare. They thought it was better, but it doesn't tend to be happening as much as what it was. And I don't know if it's that easy to do it. You have to actually, you can't just be in New South Wales and say, I want to be in Comcare. You have to be operating in various other parts and have meet certain requirements and then Comcare will, will take you on. subsidised by the government. But we're still responsible and accountable to to the Treasurer for what we do and how we manage it and to the the uh, CIRA, the State Insurance Regulatory Authority, as yeah. to how we manage our policies and claims. But financially, you have to financially, run like a normal business. We, we run based on premiums collected and what we need to pay out and what we need to collect and how we need to invest to cover the cost of what we're doing, yes. So we have a, a solvency level. that iCare was set up. Was that just a name change or did actually the whole scheme change? The whole of work cover was segmented, I suppose, for an easier word. So work cover used to include the work health safety regulation, which is our the work, work health safety inspectors, 300-odd inspectors that would visit workplaces and make sure everybody was doing the right thing to keep workers safe. It also included um, the insurance aspect of it and claims aspect of it where we were managing scheme agents to issue policies, collect premiums, manage claims, etc. Um, and we were also regulating those insurers as well. And so that was all So all we're, together. We're, we're all together. So in 2015, you broke they, it all up. They put SafeWork over into SafeWork New South Wales and they run separately on their own, have a different minister. They set up CIRA, State Insurance Regulatory Authority, which has a different minister and regulates insurance, which was now eye care, where insurance and care. So including in our workers' insurance and our homeowners' builders' warranty and the government TMF scheme, we also have lifetime care and support. So they're not charging or insuring people, but lifetime care and support is you pay a levy in your CTP registration to cover motor vehicle accidents that involve people that have either severe spinal or, or, or brain injuries and they, they fall into our lifetime care and support scheme and we just look after all of those people. And at the moment, I, it's maybe 900 over a 1,000 participants. It's one of those systems that grows fairly regularly. Um, but, yeah, so people that have had a significant brain or spinal injury are usually covered in that. I care lifetime care and support is, mm-hmm. is in there as well. And then um, the other one that we have is the Dust Diseases Board. So in your normal insurance premiums that you pay, there's also a levy that you pay for dust diseases, which... And is that everybody or is that just industries that are more... Oh, no, no, every industry. The only, only... We allocate that based on the work cover industry classification code. So the only ones that don't, we have what we call per capita rates. Runs IKEA. I can imagine you have a board like just a normal company, but then yep. you don't report to shareholders, but you report to we the report treasurer. to the treasurer. Treasury for so at the moment the treasurer is Dominic Perrottet. So our board reports to him, and they have those responsibilities as, as to how we run and function. And we our CEO reports obviously to the board around those decisions. And how does NDIS and iCare sit together? Do they have the, anything to do with each other? The two two separate schemes. One's a federal federally run scheme and and what but ones and one where we're state so we may have is it possible for somebody to be covered by ndis and i care oh 
Not at the same time, I wouldn't have thought, but I, I'm, I, I couldn't say. What we would normally might have is people starting to become, just starting, is that people that are, are getting NDIS support are engaging people to assist them who may be considered to be their workers and maybe they should have policies to cover those people that they're getting in to look after them because the NDIS is for that disability insurance payment, so they might be allowing them to pay for a carer to come in and look after them. If the carer's with them full-time or five days a week, yeah. is there an employer-employee relationship there that sh- should be covered under workers' compensation? Yeah. But as, as schemes, they're two completely separate. And... Does workers' comp cover death? Yes. Work-related incidents that, that result in a fatality, yes. And that includes the trip to or from work? No, not necessarily, depending on how the trip was undertaken and and what the circumstances of the trip. Normal driving from home to work in the morning and in the evening doesn't cover workers' comp? They used to be covered up until 2012. They were what we used to call journey claims. So your, your trip from leaving home to getting to work used to be a compensable item or a compensable trip, but when we changed those those rules in 2012 that said that relationship, that, that connect, connection between that trip and your actual work. So if you leave home and are driving... So if you drive from one work site to another... If you drive from one work site to another, you're covered. That's covered? Yes. But if you drive if from just, home to the work site... That, the general covered. rule is, yes, if you're driving between work sites to, as part of your job, that's covered. If the trip isn't part of your job, it's only just to get to work or to get home from work, it's generally not covered now. I see. And it's mm. also not covered even if you're driving in your ute? Well, if you're in a ute, if you're in a work vehicle and you're going to, and you're on the clock or on the job, it just, yeah, yeah. It depends on the type. Those circumstances always need to be, down to the come down to the detail, yes. Okay. But it, the general rule is you're no longer covered on your trip from home to work. You have a Medicare card, and mm-hmm. you might have a bulk billing, bulk billing provider, or you might pay a, a gap. With workers' comp, injured person pays everything themselves first, and then workers' comp reimburses, reimburses them. Or do you right. also get a card? There's where... no card. No. Okay, no. So that, that, to... that's more claims related, and I'm more underwriting related. But yes, and most would would pay and then invoice to get to get reimbursed from the... But that can be a massive... That can be. That's why, especially if it's like a big issue or a big ticket item that they're going to see somebody or a specialist or whatever, they might pre-approve payment before they go to the specialist. Mm. So it's all done. And, and the because the, the worker, if they've been on workers' compensation for a while, probably doesn't have that disposable income to pay a specialist yeah. pending you reimbursing or yeah. us reimbursing yeah. them. Yeah. So yeah. they'll get a pre-approval for so many visits. Sometimes they'll even do that for physio so or special treatment. They might say, yeah, they should have physio for 10 weeks, three times a week. So they'll get pre-approval for that to be paid and the physio will bill directly to the scheme agent. Yeah. So for surgery, that's why you, they normally pre-approve the surgery. So the doctor, they'll normally say, well, we're not going to operate until we get something that says we're going to get paid. You can say, yeah. next time you renew my policy, can you just renew it to the 30th of June? So it might only run for six and a half months or three and a half months or two and a half months. Okay. But it'll run for that period and you yeah. align, so you'll have a reduced away in wages, depending on whether your size means you'll be experience adjusted based on your own claims. 
that's a short-term policy period, you can do that, and it aligns to normally yeah. 30 June. So we don't have a set year, but most of our policies, and I'd, I'd estimate somewhere between 60 and 70% are 30 June renewals. A claim form, they'll be asked to provide details of what their pre, pre-injury average weekly earnings were. So that's one of the things that our compliance people look at as well. Because if someone says, oh, I only had $10,000 in wages and they get hurt and they say, oh, I was earning $2,000 a week, that's mm-hmm. that's already 100000 <laughs> So then our compliance guys would say, well, we've insured a risk that's for $10,000. we have already paid out 60000 in weekly compensation. Something's not right. If you have a one-man company and they don't pay themselves a wage because they make a loss, mm-hmm. do they have to have a policy? Yeah. If you're a proprietary limited company or if you work, your, your structure is a proprietary limited company and you're a director in that company, you, you're a separate entity. The, the proprietary limited company is the employer, not you. As a sole trader, you can't. You can't be the sole trader and an employee at the same time. If you're a sole trader, you're a sole trader. But if you're if it's a proprietary limited company, you can be a worker of that proprietary limited company and a working director. So if the company doesn't op- the director, I'm the director of the business, but I the company doesn't do anything if I'm not working. So you're you are a worker, mm-hmm. you need a policy. I yeah. see. So even if the company doesn't pay any wage to the director. Just the fact that the company is deriving deriving yeah, yeah, turnover, yeah, so and they, and a lot we get that's one of the qu- things we talk about this that confusion. They say, oh, but I didn't draw a wage, mm, but you drew dividends of fifty thousand dollars because you had a turnover of three hundred thousand dollars, let's say, or you you might have lent the company money to get it started, and then you take loan repayments from the company. You're not calling it a wage, but you're taking that because on the basis of the work that you've been doing five days a week or six days a week or seven days a week, you should be remunerated or you are a worker because the PL entity is a separate legal entity to you as a person. So there is an employer and employee relationship between the company and the director can be established because they're two separate legal entities mm-hmm. and one has to, if one's employing that. So if I'm a sole trader and I only work for myself, but then I decide to hire Catherine, well, Catherine's an employee. I, Catherine can be my employee as a sole trader, but I can't be my employee. I can't be the employer and the employee at the same time. But as soon as you set up a legal entity such as a proprietary limited company, it's its own separate legal entity and as such has responsibilities to anybody that works for it. And a, a director who's working to generate income for the company So is it fair to say that the moment a company derives active income, so not interest or something, but derives active income, it basically needs a policy? It should have a policy, yes. The only reason they don't is if it was like a shelf company and they weren't going to pay wages more than 7500 If you pay anybody that pays wages less, but bearing in mind that if you're a working director and say, oh, I'm only going to draw 7000 wages and 100000 in dividends, that's not the same. So a, a sole trader that might engage Catherine for three weeks' work and only paid her $3,000 doesn't need to have a policy because it's less than seven and a half. The threshold is once you start paying more than 7500 per annum, you need to have a policy.
society limit needs a policy the moment that you arrive active income. Well, so as long as it's we would recommend they have a that yeah. If it's, unless it's a show, as soon as it's work, as soon as work's being performed for that company, so they might not have been might not be generating any income, but they're working. There's people working there, and they they need to have a policy because mm-hmm. you would assume they're being they're getting something for doing that work that they're doing. So as soon as they're getting some sort of remuneration or money or money's worth for the work that they're doing, they need a policy. And so if it's a one-man company or one-woman company, no employees, just the director is working in the mm-hmm. business, then they need a policy. But if they work as a sole trader alone without employees, then they don't need a policy. They need a policy. Isn't that, isn't that odd? Well, we it's, it's more the legal status of the sole trader that we can't actually ensure the sole trader to be um, an, an employee as well as an employ- the employer and the employee. So the moment somebody changes from a sole trader to a company, they need to get workers' comp. Legal status changes mm-hmm. and their obligations in regards to workers' compensation yeah. then change. We get examples where it might have been a partnership or a sole trader who's now decided that they've got bigger so they had employees and they had a policy and now they're getting bigger and their, their, their tax professional or their accountant might have said to them, you're probably at that stage now in the development of your business that you need to become a proprietary limited company. So when you do that, you don't just keep the same policy because it's a, it's a completely new legal entity. You have to get cancel the old policy and take out a new policy for when the company starts employing people as to when the sole trader stopped employing people because it's a new entity. It'll have an, it'll have an ACN number. It'll have an a different, probably an ABN number. Might have the same trading name, but they then become a proprietary limited company. So it's a two, two separate entities. Two, a new brand new policy starts, the old policy finishes and it goes forward. Mm. You just mentioned partnerships. Is a partnership like the sole trader? If the partnership doesn't employ anybody, partnership doesn't employ them. anybody, they can't insure themselves. Yes. Yeah. So what do they do? I mean, they they, they operate as a partnership. But if they employed, so if you and I decided to employ Catherine, we'd have to have a policy to cover Catherine. But we can't. The policy doesn't cover you and me. Yeah. Hmm. So there would be a policy out in the market that then covers. You. There's other forms of insurance that we, you know, we don't. Whilst we don't recommend it, most, I'm guessing, sole traders and partnerships, on the basis that. If something happens to them and they've got no employees, the business doesn't work, they have personal accident and sickness policies. Yeah, and income protection Inco- policies. Or income protection so, policies, yeah. yeah. But so for a sole trader and a partnership, without any employees, there is no obligation to get insurance if they Until they start decision. employing people, yes. Yes, and, yes. Yeah. and then also it would only cover then the employees. It never covers it them. It doesn't cover them. It will only cover them when they move into a... Would they change their, their legal status to a proprietary limited company? Yeah. yeah. Looking at premiums, of course, it's difficult for you to compare, but when you look at a income protection policy to a workers' comp policy, does workers' comp usually offer a much better deal than an income protection it policy depends, or is it really d- hard to compare? It depend, it's hard to compare and it depends on how much you pay for your, whether it's personal accident and sickness policy or if it's just income protection. Um, if you pay for the top of the range, you probably do get your medicals and, and a fair bit of uh, income from that policy, workers' comp will cover all your medicals and lump sum payments if, if you have a, an injury that results in a permanent uh, impairment plus your weekly benefits. And if the injury is to a severe amount, it'll go ongoing till retirement age if you hit all the thresholds to keep going. Personal accident sickness policies, I think, sometimes have a, a, um, 
a band or a, or a limit as to how long they'll keep paying you for. Um, so in general, you'd be better off under workers' comp to get your coverage rather than personal accident sickness policy. Does the state government contribute to the workers' comp scheme? So is the workers' comp scheme entirely financed from premiums or is there the also... Nominal, the nominal insurer aspect of this of, of is, all, is purely on employers' premiums, yes. Okay. State, the only states, um, and it's, it's all managed by the nominal insurer, which, um, so we're set up as a uh, public financial corporation. So we report to the treasurer, but we're completely funded separately by um, employers' premiums. TMF, the Treasury Managed Fund, that, that's all government agencies, so technically they're funded through the Treasury. TMF is... Uh, well, uh, that's, so that's the government. So that yeah. was the fourth insurer. Yeah, yeah insurer, yeah. yeah. So TMF... So it's had various names. It's TMF, Cycorp, and now it's called Insurance for New South Wales still, I think. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But so that's just a small portion of workers? That, well, that's all government workers. Okay. So... Us, anybody that's working for iCare in this building, people that work for SafeWork. You're not insured by iCare? You, you no, work no, no, no. But, but we're, because we're technically, we're government employees. Yeah. Yes. So you yeah. are covered by TMF or whatever yeah. its current mm, name is. Mm. Mm. And so all the government schools, the teachers are all in there. Um, the hospitals, the government, government hospitals, not the private hospitals, but the government hospitals are all in there. Mm. Fire brigade. All those sorts of people, yes. uh, police, so education, health, all of that is covered under that, that aspect see. of it. Do you actively look for companies that don't have an insurance, that don't have a policy with you? We don't. We're only responsible technically for anybody that does have a policy. We work with CIRA, who who then do detection for non-insurance. So non, we can't regulate somebody who isn't actually already insured with us, and we're not a regulator. We're an insurance business. So you come to us, we give you a policy. We make sure that you're paying the right amount, not paying you're, – you're paying exactly what you need to pay to cover you for the risk that we're exposed to. Um, so that's what we do. We can't – we don't go out looking for non-insurance because they're not on our books, they're not on our register. And especially for tax purposes, and this is an argument that is quite often raised, that it's a, a husband and wife that's running the business and then they decide to become a company and still only one person is doing the work and the other one's a, a silent partner, but they declare for tax purposes two wages. If you're paying both people wages, they're both accessible for workers' comp premiums if you're paying them as wage. If you're paying a dividend to a non-working director, different. If you're paying your wife or your husband a wage because they're doing the books or they're sweeping up the shed or doing whatever, that that's going to be assessed at the same rate as the person who's outside digging holes or doing whatever they're doing. And we quite often get arguments from, in particular, husband and wife directors of a company that have just become a company saying, oh, but my wife just does the books. I'm a plumber. And my rate is 3%. Why am I paying 3% of my wife's wage? She just does the books because it's an industry-based scheme. We, we, you split your wages to reduce your tax income, which is a really good idea for tax. It doesn't, doesn't reduce your workers' compensation bill. Wages are wages, mm -hmm. whether it's admin staff or whether it's field staff or office staff. It's based on your primary business activity. And if you're a plumber, everyone gets assessed at plumbing.
and other proprietary limited companies, well, they're not. We we would if we've seen payments that, and it's a legitimate proprietary limited company of an ABN, they're a separate legal entity. They we can't make that person a deemed worker for workers' comp purposes. They would never get. Yeah. Yes. And you're and paying the company. You're not paying him, and he just has a company. You're yeah. paying the actual company, which has an ABN, which has an account, and runs yeah. a business through but that account. But then that second company has to have a policy. Has to have a policy. Yes. So that's yeah. how you pick it up. What are the most common errors you see in wage declarations? Yeah. Um, so the most most common is um, too low wages. Yes. Yeah, and not not thinking as a working director that payments that they take are accessible as wages. So that's that's a common one. The, the one I just discussed there about husband and wife setting them up and saying, oh, my wife just does the books, but she's, I'm still paying her 50000 a year and I get 50000 to split the tax. Well, her 50000 is still accessible as wages against your policy and at the same rate. Um, you, we offer a discount for apprentices' wages and sometimes there's a confusion between a qualified apprenticeship that, that we would give the discount for as opposed to a traineeship because some some or most traineeships don't get the discount. They have to be a, um, a nationally – meet the national qualification code as an apprentice to be uh, getting the discount for an apprenticeship. Excluding payments made to contractors. So somebody who might think, oh, he's a contractor, I get the, this guy in to work for me, but he's worked for me nearly 12 months this year, but he's got his own ABN. And he has a personal accident sickness policy. So therefore, I, I don't declare that. Well, there's provisions within our legislation to say they're called the deeming provisions. You can be a deemed worker. He's only worked for you solely for the last 12 months. Yes, they might have an ABN, but that doesn't change the work relationship that you've had. It just depends. I mean, we don't often know if it's been done by an accountant or not, um, whether they've done the wage deck, and it depends on whether they're on our system as an authorised person for us to talk to. So normally it could be a broker rather than an accountant. So we will talk to the broker about what's been declared. Oh, really? Do a lot of employers engage a broker? Oh, yeah, lots, especially the bigger companies have brokers uh, play a major role. In, in regards to not just workers' comp, but in sorting out all their insurances, of which workers' comp is one. So, yeah, we, we deal quite extensively with brokers on that basis. And they'll have a, a letter of appointment or an authorisation on our file so we can talk to them about what's happened. And it would be even around um, one of the other things we do get when an employer takes out a policy is they don't necessarily provide a full description of what their business is, which allows us to allocate it to the right risk. So we might contact the employer or the broker to say, so what is it you're actually doing? What does it involve? Right, It's you, so you're constructing something out of plastic or you're moulding this or you're doing that and then we can look up our classifications and work out exactly where you go. But sometimes an accountant could be the contact person, the principal contact, because some don't use brokers, especially in that sort of mid-range. They might not, oh, I don't need a broker, but I have got an accountant and mm. I use I use an accountant. And so is, is it fair to say that the big companies use brokers, the middle-sized companies use accountants, and then the really small ones? The smaller ones, the smaller ones, because the obligation is no longer there, they, they don't. They may use an accountant. Um, the mid-sized ones, it's they may have their own internal accountants that they'll use who can sign off on their forms, but then most of the bigger ones would use, generally use a broker because it's, it's, you're talking, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in the corporate 
end of the yeah, book. Yeah, or even millions, I can imagine. Oh, yeah, in premiums, yes. I guess the only other thing I'd say is, as the example that we used, sometimes the tax advice is really good for not so much reducing your tax, but for managing your tax obligations, but it doesn't necessarily reflect the same way for when it comes to workers' comp. So as I said, wage splitting to reduce the tax you pay is fine and it's it's allowable, but it doesn't necessarily change because what you... It, because yeah. it means that the plumber then later when he has an accident yes. will receive a lot less. Could potentially receive less if he says, oh, but really I was earning, that's what was coming in, but I choose to pay my wife. Well, yeah, but she didn't get hurt. <laughs> Whilst it's not compulsory for an accountant or a tax professional to sign off on wage declarations, it is it is good that when we do have people that we can sort of talk to that have an understanding and the more understanding they have, the better it is for us to, to talk to these people about what needs to be declared and when it should be declared and how it should be declared. And if you have any uncertainty, by all means, if you go to the website and look at the wages definition manual or contact us, you know, um, ring out, ring our numbers of the hotlines and ask the questions or send us an email and ask the questions, yeah. Um, and I think there's stuff on the web page about that. If you have questions around the wages definition menu, you can send something in and, you know, we'll endeavour to get something back to you as soon as we can. So if you have any uncertainty and you're not sure, yeah, definitely come, come to us and see what we can provide that can help. Welcome back. So a sole trader without employees can't join iCare, even if they want to. And the director of a trading company has to join iCare, even if they don't want to, and even if there's nobody else but the director working in the company. In the next episode, episode 158, I would like to start something new with you, something different. So far, we have focused on tax and legal questions that we come across in our practices. And of course, we will continue to do that. Think of that as the right leg you stand on. But to grow your practice, you can't just focus on your expertise. You and I and all of us also need to look at how we actually run our practice. Think of this as the left leg and to stand and not to wobble To stand firmly on the ground, we need to shift some of our weight from our right leg to our left leg so that we don't just stand on one leg, which, of course, is not as stable. So in the next episode, we will start to do just that. And we will start with the automation of processes because that presents a huge opportunity. How do you use technology to streamline workflows and make your practice more efficient? This is the question I will ask Tim Hoopman of Spin Business Services in Sydney. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. <laughs>